This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading for this morning is John 1, verses 1 through 5. It can be found on page 886 in the Black uh, Bibles in the pew. John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark, and I am one of the pastors here at Redeemer Fellowship. Uh, If you're uh, visiting with us, uh, we're glad you're here. And for everyone else, we're glad you're here also. Uh, We have a a tall task this morning. We're in a series called Jesus Is, dot, dot, dot. And this week is Jesus Is Fully God. So we're going to be talking about the incarnation. We're going to be talking about Jesus' deity this morning. So I'm I'm just going to jump right in since I have a too long, uh, too long introduction. So uh, that's, that's the claim of the Bible. I'm going to start there. That's the claim of the Bible. The claim of the Bible is that Jesus is fully God. That the eternal son was with God and was God. And here he's called the Logos. And through him was everything created. Everything was brought from non-existence into existence by the power of the word talked about in John chapter 1. This word is Jesus, and John will spend the whole gospel hammering that into our heads. Towards the end of his gospel, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written down in this book. But these things that are written are written for a reason. And that reason is that so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So here's the deal. What we want to focus on today is no small task. To talk about the deity of Jesus is to talk about the thing that when Jesus talked about it, got him killed. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day knew the significance of what Jesus was saying way more than we do today. We've put the deity of Christ in some kind of unusual category of familiarity in our hearts and complacency and sometimes bordering on boredom. The Jews in Jesus' day saw what he was doing and they heard what he was saying and they lost it. They lost it because they understood what it meant. We're tempted to look at the words of Jesus and the claims of Jesus and relegate them to a basement in our hearts that believes he's God, but not enough to do what he says. Or we believe that he's God, but not so much God that he gets to tell me how to spend my money. That's what's happening in the New Testament. 
Jesus is saying things and acting in very specific ways in order to step precisely and directly on their toes. He's doing it on purpose. It'd be like hearing a good sermon, being convicted by application by some other guy who needs to hear that sermon, and you're just dreaming about the opportunity to go tell that other person about this great sermon and how they can apply it to their lives, but then the pastor gets down, and he says, actually, I had you in mind. I had you in mind the whole time. So my my task then today isn't so much to convince you that Jesus is fully God, that he is God the Son incarnate. I don't see my primary task today as one one that focuses on kind of proofs or explanations because many of you in this room are here because at some level you already believe that Jesus is God. You already embrace it at least to some kind of life organizing uh, degree so much so that you're here on Sunday mornings. So my task is to try to discover or point to an aspect of Christ's deity that wakes us up that wakes us up to name and understand some detail of his godness that has become common to us or uninteresting to us or uncompelling to us. In Donald McLeod's book, The Person of Christ, he warns the readers that, quote, Christology is certainly beset by the danger of an arid intellectualism. A man may be an expert on the incarnation and yet be totally lacking in faith and love. But conversely, someone may have little knowledge of the great creeds and yet have real living faith in Christ. That quote in his book at the beginning of this chapter is a warning for us, but let me tell you where I stand and where I want us to stand as a church. I would like for all of us this morning to reject both of those options. I want us to reject both of those outcomes. They're not the only options. There's a third option where we can be experts on Christology and the incarnation and the great creeds and have real and deep and abiding, living faith in practice. That's our goal. That's our goal. We want to be the kind of people and we want to be the kind of place that does not give up on that aim. A place that stands for the beauty of God in Christ as we study theology and stands for the beauty of God in Christ for love and living faith in our daily lives. Let that vision draw you up and pull you forward down the path toward that kind of a future for yourself and for our church. Now, I believe that only the Holy Spirit can wake us up to that kind of desire and that kind of direction and passion. So uh, would you join me and would you pray with me that God would be pleased to pour out his Holy Spirit in this place to open our eyes, pull back the curtain, and give us fresh sight of God the Son this morning. Bow your heads with me as I pray. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, right now, right now, would you begin to work things up to the surface of our hearts that need to be addressed? Right now, would you begin to open our eyes to a deeper dimension of your beauty and power and love and grace and mercy and kindness and care. Right now, Holy Spirit, would you peel back the curtain, open our eyes, open our eyes 
Because Christ is shining and we want to see it. We want to see it. Spirit of God, would you convict us of sin this morning? Spirit of God, would you comfort the weary this morning? Spirit of God, would you lead us, direct us, humble us, and change us, transform us, we ask, in the name of God the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hey, it's, it's plain in this text, it's plain in this text that we tend to have a sight problem. Because God's, God's not the problem. Jesus isn't the problem. We have spiritual glaucoma. We have spiritual nearsightedness. We do. The issues, the issues aren't with Jesus. He shines. He shines. He shines in the darkness, and we need to see him. And if we see him, everything changes. Everything else you see changes. Our subject this morning is the deity of Christ. Jesus is fully God. This is the kind of subject that ancient heresies revolved around. And in our day, a heresy isn't much concern to us. But in the history of the church, both the nature of Christ's humanity and his divinity have caused quite a number of dust-ups. Now, I'm relieved, I am relieved that in this country, we don't, uh, we don't burn heretics yet. But I don't think that's our proclivity anyways. We aren't a people in the modern church who believe that their faith could ever cause real threats of bodily harm, much less different doctrinal stances. But in a climate where nobody dies for anything anymore, much less religion, we've grown too cozy with fuzzy definitions and fuzzy doctrines. In eras of comfort and blessing and luxury, Israel went down roads of idolatry and they grew lazy. They grew complacent. They grew negligent of their convictions and negligent of the word of God itself. So I want us to ask ourselves this morning, is Jesus really fully divine? Is Jesus the man, the man, the man that walked the earth and healed people, and preached the kingdom of God is at hand, and was tortured and brutally crucified on a Roman cross. That guy, that guy, was he God? And then he rose from the dead, and he's alive now. Is he the God of the universe, and is he the God, the ruler, the king, the person in charge of your universe? Do we as a people need to make sure our understanding of his divinity is etched into the granite of our foundations? And I believe we do. In Colossians 2.9, the Apostle Paul writes, For in him, Jesus Christ, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's, there's a year's worth of sermons packed into those ten words but this week we're going to deal with whole fullness of deity. And next week we'll deal with dwells bodily. We're aiming to understand and adore. Aiming to understand and adore both of these dimensions, both of these features of Jesus. And in, and in preparation for today's sermon, I was greatly helped by a book called God the Son Incarnate, written by uh, a theologian named Stephen Wellham. In his chapter on the deity of Christ, he claims that there's a, a plethora of evidence, a plethora of e evidence throughout the scriptures uh, 
of uh, Christ's divinity, but where he's most helpful was in his ability to categorize that evidence. He compiles it around three categories that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to utilize those categories this morning. He talks about the divine status of Christ as seen in the scriptures. He talks about the divine works of Christ as seen in the scriptures. And he talks about the divine titles of Jesus. And we're going to borrow those categories for some of the work that we're going to do this morning. So first, Christ is shown to have divine status throughout the Bible. The two areas that provide the most texture and power to this claim for our church as I was preparing this morning are Jesus Jesus Christ is shown to have all authority and, and we worship him because he deserves worship. He's the right object of our worship. That's a divine status. And, and he has all authority and rule. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. He's the king of the kingdom of God. He isn't a mere prophet or a good teacher or a moral example. His divinity is confirmed over and over and over again in how he has talked about as Lord and his authority and his rule over the cosmos. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Romans 14, 8 and 9. Christ is far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Ephesians 1, 21. Every knee should bow to Jesus in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Philippians 2.10. He has the power to subject everything, all things to himself, Philippians 3.21. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him, 1 Peter 3.22. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and he is the ruler of the kings of earth. Revelation 1.5 tells us he is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, and we must all appear at his judgment seat. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us, and Jesus himself tells us, He tells us to go and disciple the nations. He goes, here are your marching orders. And why can I tell you that? I tell you that because all authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All other authority in the universe is derivative. And that authority is real. It's real and it is derivative. There's real authority structures in the family and in society that are good for us, but all of them bow the knee to Jesus. His rule, his authority is divine and it is comprehensive. The application for that today is that we should experience and feel as though our lives are under the authority and rule of Jesus. This is one of the ways we try to express that in the Crow household. You're not in charge. And we get to say that a lot. You're not in charge. Hey, 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 hey. You're not in charge. You're not in charge of that. You're not in charge of them. You're not in charge. 
And hey, even daddy's not in charge. He has somebody who's in charge over him. Someone who tells him what to do. We're not in charge. You're not in charge. Jesus is in charge. And when he tells us how to live, sometimes our hearts bristle or buck or push away. And the answer when that happens isn't ever to give up or stop obeying. It's to obey and notice where that attitude needs adjustment so that you can confess and repent and change. If I said to the husbands in the room this morning, husbands, you need to love your wife like Christ loved the church because the word of God says you should, that's true. It's a true statement. It's what the Bible says. And, and you have to deal with two things when I say that. You have to deal with whether or not you're doing that, right? Or whether or not you need a course correction or if you need to repent to your wife. And you have to deal with what the commandment provokes inside you. You have to deal with what the commandment provokes inside you. Your wife's spiritual health and her moral and spiritual beauty is your problem, husbands. It's your problem. And if that provokes irritation or anger or resentment or frustration, then that only means the commandment is working. And God is being kind to us in that moment as he takes our sin and draws it to the surface where we can see it so that we can deal with it and kill it. And that applies to all of us. None of us like to not be the boss. And we especially don't want to be told that we aren't the boss of ourselves, but you're not. And the deity of Christ asserts lordship over you, over your money and your stuff, and over what you care about, over everything. The deity of Christ declares there's not one square inch in all creation over which the risen Christ does not declare mine, mine. Thank you, Abraham Kuyper. And that also means over me and over you. So ask yourself this morning, is the Lord, is Christ the Lord of my life? Is he? And when you, and then you can test it by setting your life against the scriptures because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And this word tells us how to live. And do we, do we want to listen? The deity of Christ is conveyed throughout the New Testament by him being worshiped, by him being worshiped. That's divine status. We worship Jesus as Christians. No other religion worships Jesus. And if a religion doesn't worship Jesus, then that religion isn't Christian. And Jesus is shown to be divine precisely because he receives worship and he receives, receives praise. And we're instructed to give him worship in the word, in the Bible. This is the kind of thing that would not have been missed by the Jews in Jesus' day because they knew their Old Testament and that only Yahweh was to be worshipped. In Exodus 20, 1 through 7, it says, 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods, no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness or anything that's in heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And in fact, Luke 4, 8, Jesus himself says, it's written, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This is why it makes such a profound statement about his deity when Jesus receives worship from the crowds and worship and praise from his disciples. In fact, Jesus answers this way to drive the point home that the answer to the question, who do you say that Jesus is, is the most important answer to any question in your life. Is he God or is he some sort of program for your own self fulfillment? Is he something to improve your quality of life or is he to be worshiped as the living God in the same way that Yahweh is to be worshiped throughout the Old Testament? Do, Do me a favor, turn to Acts chapter seven on page 916 of the Bibles in your pew. Acts chapter seven, I'm gonna start in verse 54. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. I'm going to start on verse thir- uh, in verse 34. This is the story of the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they put their hands over their ears and rushed at him and they cast stones at him and cast him out of the city and stoned him to death. And the witnesses laid down their garments at his feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were throwing large rocks at this man's face and body, Stephen looks up and he calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The Jews were enraged at this moment by what Stephen was saying. And all he was saying was, hey, that guy that you crucified, that was the righteous one. That, that was the Messiah, the anointed deliverer. That was God the Son. You killed the prophets. You killed all the prophets in the past, and now you've killed who they prophesied about, Jesus. But Stephen's being stoned to death, and he looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Never mind the fact that no one can do that but God alone. Only God can receive your spirit as you die. But Stephen is here praying to Jesus, praying to him. Only God can receive the trusting act of prayer, which is an act of worship. In Revelations in Revelation 5, 11, and 12, there's this majestic worship scene that's aimed at Jesus. It says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living 
creatures and all the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's a provocative uh, scene, a reality that it shows the demonstration, and it demonstrates that worshiping Jesus is the proper thing to be doing. To worship the lamb that was slain means he's God, unequivocally, completely, fully God. Application this morning, he deserves our worship. That's, That's what we come here to do on Sundays. He deserves our praise. He deserves our honor. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our voices, which is to say he deserves our singing, singing to him, about him, and what he has done for us. Praise and worship in the form of us singing is fitting. It's fitting for the creature. That's us. So this morning, praise the Lord Jesus. Praise him. Thank him. Pray to him. Love him in worship. Ascribe praises to him. Sing with your voice. Because he deserves it. He deserves it. I know a lot of church-going folk that couldn't be shut up after the Chiefs won last week who don't lift their voices to God on Sundays. And if that's you... I'm not shaming anybody. You're missing out. You're missing out. He deserves it. And we're made to do it. We're made to worship him. And that includes worshiping him in song. The, the, deity, of, the deity of Christ is also shown in his divine works. Jesus did, or is explained to be responsible for, many acts. Many works that are self-evidently reserved for deity. But the two that I want to highlight are that Jesus is shown to be the agent of creation and that he is shown to forgive sins. Two things that are reserved for God alone. First, G- excuse me, first, Jesus is the agent of creation. Last week we saw in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. So God created the world way before Jesus ever came in the flesh. But the writer of Hebrews explains to us that God spoke through the prophets and now he's speaking through his son. And oh, by the way, the son is the heir of everything and God created the world through him. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him everything holds together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him was nothing made that has been made. God the Son was active and present in the creation of the world, and he is here right now. And I mean right now. And he's creating new things in our church. 
Look around. Has your life been saved? Has your marriage been saved and redeemed? Have you repented and believed the gospel of Jesus? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you turned from a life of sin and folly? Have you been rescued and made whole? And have you been forgiven? Have you been moved from a kingdom that is dark to a kingdom that is bright like the sun because Jesus shines? Because he shines. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's creating things in our church right now. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus is creating new things in our lives right now in this place that only God can do. Only God has the power to create the universe. And Jesus creates new things right now. He isn't, he isn't just a man. He isn't just a philosopher. He isn't just our sidekick or our genie or our mascot. He isn't our maid. He's the creator and covenant-keeping God of all the universe. Application, ask him. Ask him for help. Ask him to recreate something in your life. Do you need something remade? And let me say that a different way. You need something remade today. What is it? What is it? Do you find yourself here this morning and you need God to re- recreate something in your life? Do you have stuff in your past that colors all of your relationships? Do you have mistakes or sins that you've committed that still hold you in fear or guilt or paralyze you from ministry or from trying to start a family or from moving forward. Jesus redeems and he recreates. And I don't know, I don't know the details of everyone's story in this room, but I do know something. I know that if you ask him to create something new in you or to heal you or to change you, he will not sit on his hands. I know it. It might not go, I want to be totally straight with everybody in the room, it might not go exactly how you want it to go, or how you would plan it, or how you would pray for it. But if you are humble and you cry out to him, he won't laugh at your weakness or your desperation. So ask him to create in you a clean heart, just like David did. He won't sit on his hands. The divine work The next divine work I want to talk about that Jesus is shown to do is he forgives sins. Only God can forgive sins. In the gospel of Mark chapter two, verses one through seven, the writer tells a story that I want to tell you all this morning. It says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many, many were gathered together so that there was no more room in that place, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to these people. And they came, and some certain people came, bringing a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they took off the roof above Jesus. And when they had made an opening, they lowered this man down on a bed on which the paralyzed man was laying. And when Jesus, it doesn't say when Jesus saw this, it says when Jesus saw their faith, 
Jesus looks at this scene and he doesn't see what we see. He looks at this scene of a man being lowered through a hole in the roof. He looks on this and he sees faith happening. He sees faith happening in action in this moment. And he says to this man, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And there was people in the crowd, scribes who were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The connection here is startling for the audience in Jesus' day. Why is he talking that way? Only God can do that. And they are worked up. And they should be. Because they are right. Only God can forgive sins. This is Jesus' deity on display. He didn't get tortured and murdered because he was a good teacher. He didn't get his flesh ripped off of his body because he was a great moral example. He got slaughtered because he said, I'm God, and that means you're not, and that means you have to come to terms with that. And some people bowed down. Some people bowed down and wept and said, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And others shrieked, crucify him. Crucify him. Some people, when they stood in the presence of Jesus, said, I need you to forgive me because I'm guilty and I know it. I'm guilty and I know it. And some people, when they came face to face with Jesus, were happy so they could spit in it. Because they wanted nothing to do with him. The issue in our day isn't that we don't understand that Jesus was calling himself God when he said things like, before Abraham was, I am. I am, the name for God from Exodus 3. The issue in our day is we don't care. Our senses for spiritual things are dulled by entertainment and luxury. And so this truth tends to roll off of our backs. We need this spirit to wake us up, wake us up to the implications that Jesus is God. And we need this spirit to bring conviction about the damage and dishonor that our sin brings to him. Listen to this quote. Moreover, moreover, it is crucial to understand that the New Testament presents Jesus forgiving sins, not as another God, and not as God the Father, even, but as God the Son who shares in the work of the Father. Okay, at this point, at this point, we've seen divine status expressed in Jesus' authority and that he is the proper object of worship. We've seen his divine works and that he is the agent of creation and he forgives sin. And Jesus' divinity could be a sermon series all on its own. There are treasures here that I have not been able to get to, but my last divine kind of evidence is his, is, are, the, uh, are the divine titles that are attributed to him. And the two that I want to stress are that Jesus is called Lord. He's called Lord in the New Testament, and he's called God, theos in the Greek. 
Lord can be used in many different ways throughout the Bible, and it is used in different ways, including even when it's used regarding Jesus. But that's not as important. The important thing to understand is that the title Lord is in the Old Testament scriptures reserved for Yahweh. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of the Hebrew Scriptures. And if Jesus, if he is called Lord the way Yahweh is called Lord, that's really important for his hearers, and it's really important for us today. Jesus is Lord, not because I said so, but because the Word of God says so. Again, Philippians Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's a statement that puts Jesus equal and on the same footing in some way with Yahweh, with Yahweh. When the scriptures ascribe lordship to Christ, that title comes with potency. Potency in the ancient world, and it comes with potency for this Jewish audience. For the Jews, this scrambles their categories. Only Yahweh is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. So that means Jesus, in some sense, is the same God that we've always worshipped. It is a provocative and challenging phrase. You can imagine, you can imagine two Jewish brothers staying at the periphery of Jesus' ministry, kind of appreciating him from afar and noticing people being healed. And finally, for one of them, the lights come on. The lights come on, and he's willing to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord, and the other one, the light doesn't come on, and those brothers have to part ways from that moment forward. Jesus splits people apart in that way. He said he would, and that still happens right now. People lose their families because they look at Jesus and they say, he's not a moral teacher. He's not a prophet. He's my Lord and my God. And then for the Gentile believers, Jesus is Lord means Caesar isn't Lord. And that's a big problem. It meant persecution. It means being eaten by lions. It means being burned alive. It means complete social rejection. It means you lose everything. Everything. You literally lose everything. Jesus' Lord was an atom bomb to the social fabric of the ancient world, both for the Jews and for the Gentiles. And it evidences the divinity of Jesus. Listen to this quote from scholar David Wells. To speak of Christ as Lord is to identify him ontologically with Yahweh. That's just a big word that means the nature, right? It's to identify him in his, na- in his very nature with Yahweh. To ascribe to him the worship which rightly belongs only to God, to acknowledge him as sovereign in his church and in his creation and see him as the vindicator of God's character in the world, end quote. 
Finally, in our text, John, John says the word was with God and the word was God. In the Greek, theos, this title, this title is given to Jesus at least seven times and many of those are in John's gospel. This is an earth shattering title for the ancient world. And it also makes things crystal clear. What John does in these short verses is to leave zero room for discussion. This is a cosmic shockwave, and this claim cannot be overstated. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the, Lord, of the, appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, Stephen Wellham. He says, we can now summarize what John means by referring to Christ as the logos, the word, and ultimately giving him the title theos. Christ is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. Christ is a distinct person from the Father. The Word was with God. The only Son from the Father. Christ shares full deity of God. The Word was God. And with the eternality, personality, and deity of this Word, Son, Christ, in view, we can now understand just who it is that John says became incarnate. Theos, God himself. Application this morning is go to him. Go to Jesus. Go to God himself. Look to him and ask and seek and knock. He alone can be your savior and your God. He's the only one with true authority and righteousness and power. He's in charge. You're not in charge. You can't be in charge. The universe doesn't work that way. So humble yourself and submit to his authority and listen to him and learn from him. Do you have sin in your life this morning? Real question right now. Do you have hidden sin in your life? You can repent and ask him to forgive you and he will. The Bible says, confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do you have destruction and demolition in the wake of your life? Have you hurt other people or have you been selfish or unreliable? Or do you just have damage in your life? Jesus created the universe and he recreates us, top to bottom, front to back. He's in the business of recreating lives just like the one that you might have squandered or you might have wasted up till this point. He takes the leftovers of our wreckage and he makes everything brand new new. Jesus is Lord. Ask yourself right now, where are you refusing to acknowledge that? 
Ask yourself this morning, where's Jesus not Lord in my life? Is he Lord of your money? Is he Lord of your wealth? Is he the Lord of your habits and your routines? Is he the Lord over your thoughts? The Bible says that we take every thought captive. How do we do that? We do it by making it obedient to Jesus. The Lord, is he Lord over your thoughts? Is Jesus Lord over your emotional life, your fears and anxieties and anger and envy and jealousy? We don't think those things consciously, but we feel them. They're spring-loaded inside of us. Is Christ Lord over your emotional life? I'm not talking about social media platforms this morning. I'm not talking about big progressive ideologies. I'm not talking about the government or critical theory or Marxism or, or social justice causes. I'm not talking about anything out there that's threatening us right now as a church. I'm talking about the world that you touch every day. I'm talking about your personal internal landscape. Is Jesus the Lord of what goes on inside you? Is Jesus the Lord of what goes on inside your heart? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, and I urge us right now, brothers, sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Our emotional life is part of our bodies. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Jesus is worthy of that kind of worship because he's fully God. Amen? Amen. As we move in this part of our service to take communion, let me give just a few instructions. The way we take communion here at Redeemer Fellowship is we dip a piece of bread off, we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups have wine in them and the glassware has juice in them. There'll be two stations in front of me, one over to my left that is gluten-free and single serve. And we'll have a station up in the balcony. And we also have prayer ministers who would love to pray for anybody, anytime. And they're over here to my far left underneath the stained glass window. At Redeemer, you're welcome to come up and take communion for anybody who's putting all of their faith in Jesus Christ. For, for someone in this room, for anybody in this room who Christ is your Lord, we invite you to come take communion this morning. And if he isn't, we invite you to uh, pray. Ask him to reveal himself. Look to him. Um, look to him. But we ask you to not, not take this meal with us. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So right now, um, do work in your own hearts. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring conviction or comfort or whatever you need from your heavenly father this morning. I'm going to pray for us. And then the musicians are going to come forward and the and the servers are going to come forward. Would you all bow, bow your heads with me as I pray? Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, 
thank you for your body that was crushed and broken. And thank you for your blood that was shed for our lives. I ask, Spirit of God, that right now in our hearts, you would take more ground in our lives. Be Lord over more parts of who we are. Places that we've hidden, places that we've been defensive, places we've been lazy, places we've been scared. Would you take more ground over our hearts, over our emotions, over our souls, over what we care about, what fills our minds, what we daydream about? Would you take more ground, Jesus, I ask in your name. Amen. Come forward whenever you are ready.